One writer wrote these rather telling words. You can tell the ideals of a nation by its advertisements. Ooh. If that's true, what does our culture value in America? Immorality, greed, selfishness. That's what our advertisements say. We Christians face a huge, huge challenge. For God calls us to live counter-cultural lives. We're supposed to be different. We have a different set of values. Because our lives should reflect His values, not this world's values. Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. We're looking at verses 1 through 6 where God calls us to reflect his values to a very self-censured, greedy, immoral culture in which we live. God wants us as Christians to stand out. We must be countercultural. And the author of Hebrews highlights, I think, three kingdom values that we should have as Christians in these verses. First of all, the first kingdom value is love. That is the kind of love that God wants us to value. And it is giving without getting. Look at verses 1 through 3, Hebrews chapter 13. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Now, verse 1 is a command. Literally, he writes, let love persist. Remain. It is to be a constant value of Christians to love. Jesus said it is one of the marks of a Christian. Love is the, in fact, one could say is the primary mark of a Christian. And love should continue to live on in our lives as followers of the God of love. The word for love used here comes from two Greek words that put together mean brotherly love. We see it transliterated into our culture with the name Philadelphia. That's this Greek word, brotherly love. This is a love that cares about others like they are brothers or sisters. Certainly this means that we're to love our fellow Christians. But it also means we're to love non-Christians with a love that cares about them more than about our self-interest. I mean, Jesus told the familiar story of the Good Samaritan, right? To illustrate that people with needs that we come in contact with are our neighbors. We should seek to meet their needs if we have the capacity to do so. Life is not to be lived for ourselves, according to God's values. It is not to be lived for our own self-interests. Love is giving, not getting. Love is giving without the hope that we'll get. Without that as the motive. And that is one of God's values. And that is totally countercultural. 
this kind of love. The author goes on to give three specific examples or illustrations how we should persist in love. First he writes, don't overlook the love of strangers. Now I know a lot of us are strange, but we are not to overlook the love of strangers. Journalist and popular speaker Dennis Prager says that he has for the last 15 years traveled around America speaking to young people, high schoolers. And for the last 15 years, he's asked young people a, a, the same question here in America. If they were in an emergency situation, would they save their dog or a stranger? If they had to make a choice in an emergency situation, which one would they save, their dog or a stranger? What do you think young people answered? For the last 15 years, he said, the overwhelming answer is my dog. Because I love my dog and I don't love, my, I don't love the stranger. And he says, what does that tell you about our cultural values? The word hospitality is the word used here, and it literally means love of strangers. That's what it means in the Greek. In the ancient world, there were very few hotels, very few inns, and the hotels or inns that were available to travelers in the ancient world were places of ill repute. They were morally bad places to be, dangerous. And so, the Christians were exhorted to love strangers by opening their homes to travelers in need. That was particularly true for Christian business people who would travel around the ancient uh, Mediterranean world. And for teachers who would travel around, they needed places to stay. And the early church quickly latched on to this value in their, that, that was counter to their culture, of course. And a network of Christian homes developed all over the Mediterranean world where Christian business people could go and stay for the night. Or teachers could go and stay They offered lodging and meals in a very safe environment to all who came to their doors. They didn't charge. It wasn't getting anything for it. They were giving without getting. They were loving strangers. And out of that concept grew the value in the first century church that Christians were to be hospitable. We are to open ourselves and our resources to help others in need. That is a value that Christians hold. Hospitality is a value of Christianity. The author is obviously thinking here in in verse 2 with his illustration, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. He's obviously thinking of Abraham. In Genesis 18, you remember the story of Abraham at the, by the oak of Mamre and the strangers that came to him and he opened his tent 
And he was hospitable to these strangers. And of course, the strangers turned out to be angels who foretold the birth of Isaac and, and on the story went. So the author of Hebrews concludes, look, you never know when you offer your resources to strangers, you never know whether you might be entertaining an angel unawares. You might be entertaining someone that has unique ways of rewarding that hospitality. You give because it's a value, but you never know where that will go. Bruce Larson tells a wonderful story that took place years ago, many years ago in Philadelphia. There was an inn there in Philadelphia, and there was an elderly couple that showed up at the inn late at night, 11 o'clock, midnight. It was, it was raining. It was very bad weather out. They were drenched. They were in, in difficult straits, but the hotel was full. There was no vacancy and the no vacancy sign was there, but they went in, and the desk clerk in the hotel answered the, the, this elderly couple, and they said, we need a place to stay. Now, how was that desk clerk to respond? No, we're all filled up. What, you think you can come here without reservations? We're a high-class hotel. You know, you can't just show up here. No, the desk clerk said to them, look, I can't send you back out into that rain. We are all filled up, but, but I have a little room over here that, that we use mostly for storage and that sort of thing. So let, let me have the housekeeper just kind of clean that up and we'll get a bed for you. And, and, and it won't be great, but at least you'll have a place to stay. And so the housekeeper came back after a while and they'd cleaned it up and, and they put this elderly couple in, in this uh, little storage room and a bed and everything. And he said, the, the desk clerk said, look, I'll, I'll, I'll have a cup of hot tea and some other things brought to your little room here for a minute. Don't worry about it. We, I can't send you back out into this mess. So time passed. The couple, of course, left the next day. A year and a half later, the uh, fabulous Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York was completed, finally finished. And uh, John Jacob Astor, the owner of the hotel, happened to be, he and his wife, the couple that showed up at that hotel in Philadelphia a year and a half earlier. So, he said to his people, go get me that desk clerk. I want him to manage the Waldorf Astoria Hotel for me. You just never know. Now, that's not the motive why we do it. But God has his ways of rewarding us when we offer his hospitality. And we don't overlook the love of strangers. That's the first example of love. Two more examples in this verse. Remember the prisoners and remember those who are treated badly. They go together grammatically here in the text, but really represent two values that are related. One of the very important ways that we express God's values in this world is to remember those who are in chains, because that's literally what it says. And we are to do so as if we ourselves were in prison. We were confined with them. Now, he's probably thinking primarily of other Christians who, through persecution, were being placed in prisons and saying we ought to 
We ought to remember these prisoners as if we ourselves are apart, as if we ourselves were being imprisoned as well. Because we too could be imprisoned as Christians. Persecution of Christians is very real today in our 21st century world as well. Do we care about them? Maybe not right around us here in America or in this town, but across the globe, Christians are being persecuted, imprisoned. Do we care? I think we can extend the application also to loving those who are in prison in general. Because the verse doesn't specifically limit limit the love to persecuted Christians. Christians should be a people who value and care for those who are in prison. It is giving without getting. There's no hope of return there. And finally, we are to express God's values in this world by remembering those who are treated badly, ill-treated, oppressed, maltreated. The word can even mean tortured or oppressed. But it's a broad word. It simply means any kind of bad treatment. So Christians should love those who are badly treated by society and reach out in tangible ways to express God's love to those who have nothing with which to repay us. Love is giving without getting. That is a value we hold as Christians. And that is totally countercultural. We have many ways in which we can express God's love as a church. Uh, we, we certainly try as a church to do this, for it is a value that Christians should hold. For example, Dan Mercer in the Youth Center, and, and we have a number of folks who serve in the Kairos ministry to the Youth Center, Operation Christmas Child and Angel Tree, dealing with needy people around the world and children of prisoners. Beth Wilson and her ministry to the refugee population here in the area of Portland. The root cellar, his mansion. We have those who have served and are involved in the Wyndham Correctional Center. We also have a caregiving fund and a storehouse fund. And you can give to those simply by designating it on your, on your envelopes. You can give to either the storehouse fund, which goes to needs of people in our community, or the caregiving fund, which goes to needs of people within our church family. Either way, and we disseminate that to people in need. There are many, many other options, prison fellowship. Um, if, if you want to be involved in uh, the persecuted church, there are websites to go to. I go to them periodically to pray and, and uh, look at the needs that are there, the voice of the martyrs, for example. There are so many ways to get involved in carrying out the value that is being expressed here for Christians. Do we? See, these are the values that are kingdom values. God's values reflected in our lives. The second category, or the second major value, so that's the kind of love he's talking about here, that we are to value that kind of love. The second major value is marriage, the preciousness of purity. Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. 
So a second countercultural kingdom value is marriage. And the command is simple. Let marriage be held in honor among all Christians. The word for honor means costly or precious. It referred to something of exceptional value, of great worth. Let marriage be precious among you, God tells us. This is a value we are to hold. But is it? Is it truly precious to Christians and to the Christian church in America? You would think that marriage would be so high in value among Christians that we would, that we would literally stand out in our culture as being different. And yet, sadly, the facts say otherwise. Researchers have long estimated that 50% of marriages in America end in divorce. That's just an estimate because the hard data is very hard to to evaluate and and pull together, but it is an estimate. The hard data does tell us that marriage is not held precious in our society today. A George Barna study in 2009 indicates that 25% of all adults in America have at least one divorce during their lifetime. And that America has a higher divorce rate than any other Western country and has a higher divorce rate than countries like Russia, for example. And here is the really telling statistic from George Barna's study last, last year. It, it was completed, I think, December of 2009. Christians have a higher divorce rate than non-Christians. Ouch. According to Barna's 1999 study, 25% of those who label themselves born-again Christians are divorced compared with 21% of those who call themselves atheists and agnostics. Do we value it? It's also troubling to find out from his study that the highest rates of divorce in America are in the Bible Belt, where Christians have the biggest influence. Those states have the highest rate of divorce. Now, it is true from this study that the divorce rate is going down. So we rejoice in that. But before we rejoice too much... We need to understand something. Living together is going up. 11% of the unmarried population in America live together. And 54% of first marriages live together prior to marriage. It is these kinds of statistics that make us realize the truth that holding marriage as precious is a totally countercultural value in America. Now, please don't get me wrong. I am not here this morning to come down on any of you 
and your circumstances and your situations. I fully realize as pastor that many of you have gone through the pain of divorce and it is painful. And I also know that God is a wonderful God of grace and love who gives us the strength to put our lives back together as, some, as many of you have done. I'm only trying to point out here that as Christians we need to work hard at making the marriage of one man to one woman for life a value that we hold on to in this world and that we are working for and that we are promoting and emphasizing for it is countercultural. Our culture is attacking that value all the time. And you have gone through those kinds of experiences. Know the pain and the struggle that comes from all of that. We need to hold marriage between one man and one woman for life up to the very highest of ideals in our churches because it's under attack in our culture. Now, Hebrews goes on to make this value very concrete, however, by saying that we are to hold marriage precious, and in particularly, particular, we are to keep the marriage bed undefiled, pure, unstained by sin. How do we make the marriage bed undefiled? Or flipping it around, how do we, or how do we keep the marriage bed undefiled? Or flipping it around, how do we defile or corrupt or make the marriage bed impure? Well, he says, we do so by fornication and by adultery. That's what makes the marriage bed impure. The word for fornication generally refers to sex before marriage. That's typically the way it is used, certainly in our, in our understanding today. And we need to speak on that subject in our churches. For it is a battle with our culture. Sex before marriage is a commonly held Value, if you will, by people in our culture. They see nothing wrong with it. But God says it's sin. God says it's wrong. And we need to help those who have sinned in this way to lead pure lives once again. Obviously, getting married is the answer to living together. But But even more than that, we need to help people value sexual purity prior to marriage. And to recover the value of sexual purity in marriage. That is countercultural. It goes against the value system of our world. Many, and this is true for all pastors, but many, many of the couples that I deal with who come for marriage are sexually active with one another long before they get married. That's very common today. So this issue of purity in marriage is an issue we have to work at covering in all of that process. The preciousness of purity, it's a value we want to hold on to. 
and young people hang on to that value. Purity is precious. It is costly. It is valuable. It is worth it. Don't succumb to the values of our culture, which says, ah, everybody's doing it. Even our Christian culture, our youth culture, which says, everybody's doing it. Don't succumb to that value system. But the word fornication means much more than just premarital sex. It was used of sexual impurity of all kinds. In fact, we get our word pornography from this Greek word group in the New Testament. Pornography is one of the greatest challenges, I think, in America to impurity in marriage. It is a huge issue. Here are a couple of statistics to ponder. Minutes until another porn movie is made, 39 minutes. Every 39 minutes, a new porn movie is made. Amount spent on pornography each second in America, $380. Every second spent on pornography. Percentage of porn websites produced in the United States, 89%. 89% of all the porn sites in the world are produced where? In our country. What does that tell you? got to value the preciousness of purity and that is countercultural. Pornography is not an innocent activity that doesn't hurt anyone. Pornography is an addiction that is defiling many, many marriages in our culture today, including Christian marriages. And we need to reclaim the preciousness of purity in marriage by repenting of the addiction to pornography. And God can help you do that. Adultery is the, sec- is the other one here. Obviously, adultery is the breaking of the marriage covenant through sex outside of marriage. And this too renders the marriage bed impure. Sexual unfaithfulness is at epidemic proportions in our culture. It is everywhere. And it is affecting Christian marriages. It is probably the number one reason for marital breakup, sexual unfaithfulness to the marriage vow. The verse tells us here that God will judge fornicators and adulterers. That's an awesome statement. God takes impurity very, very seriously. You say... Well, Dave, what if I've committed adultery? What if I have become addicted to pornography? What if I have sinned in these ways? What do I do? Does that mean I'm doomed to be judged by God? No. Why? Because you take these verses in the context of the rest of Scripture, right? God will judge fornicators and adulterers if you do not repent and claim the grace of God for healing. But if you repent, and if you claim God's grace, then his grace has healing power and begins to change our lives. And God can do that for you too. 
I can tell you that God can and will make you pure again. I've dealt with many couples where I've seen God do that. And it's a joy. God can and will, by His grace, make you pure in your marriage again. Or as you prepare for marriage, if you come to Him in repentance and seek His forgiveness and to follow His values. He can and He will. I can tell you that from the depths of my heart. I can also tell you that if you don't, God will judge. If you don't, God will judge the impurity of your heart. The challenge to the value of marriage is very, very real in our culture. It's huge. And we need to hold on to the preciousness of purity in marriage That's God's value, and it isn't easy. I know it isn't easy. And I know through the experiences that many of you have gone through, it is hard to hold on to that value in the hurts and the struggles and the temptations and the failures that take place. But with God's help, we can clean up our lives. We can live pure lives. We can make marriage that kind of a value. In his book, the, This Momentary Marriage, A Parable of Permanence, pastor and author John Piper uses a, a great analogy for how we need to value marriage today. I like this analogy, even though it's, it's a, a bit earthy, all right? But Piper says, look, when you become Christian, when you, be, when you, when you get married, you tend to look at marriage like this beautiful field of Grasses and meadows and flowers. And, and you enter into marriage and you have this, this beautiful field of life ahead of you. And you and your spouse start walking through this gorgeous field of flowers. And about the first few feet you encounter something called cow pies. And you start stepping in cow pies. And everywhere you walk in this beautiful field that you thought was so lovely and beautiful, marriage, there's cow pies everywhere. So what do you do? He says, look, as Christians, what we do is we get out a shovel and we create a marriage compost. (laughs) And we shovel all the cow pies into the compost. And we work hard at shoveling all the cow pies into that compost. He says, the cow pies are the temptations and habits we each bring to this marriage. The failures, the sins, the flaws are past. The cow pies are the tests we face in marriage, things that come at us. The cow pies are the personality traits, the irritating habits that we bring to the marriage and that we exhibit in marriage. And marriage is like this giant magnifying glass, you know, and it just, it just points out all those flaws in us, doesn't it? John Piper says we've got to create that compost pile. And we need to shovel the cow pies into that pile. And sometimes he says we may walk by and smell the compost pile. But we don't stay there. We walk away, and he says these words. I'm going to read his words. From that pi- we walk away from that pile and set our eyes on the rest of our field. We will pick some favorite paths and hills that we know are not strewn with cow pies. And we will be thankful for the part of the field that is sweet. 
Our hands may be dirty, and our backs may ache from all the shoveling. But one thing we know, we will not pitch our tent by the compost pile. We will only go there when we must. This is a gift of grace that we will give each other again and again and again and again because we are chosen and holy and loved. So it's the gift we give each other in marriage. Value it. Hold it precious. And shovel the cow pies. Third, third value is contentment. You know, here in Hebrews 13, he's getting right down to where we live. So now we get to talk about money. <laughs> We're hitting all the biggies. Sex, money. All right, verses 5 and 6. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? You know, when we become Christians, our Christianity is supposed to change our viewpoint on money. But all too often it doesn't. Many Christians are baptized but not their wallets. (laughs) Not giving that to God. God can have everything but my wallet. My money is mine. Not so. Not so. Let your character be free from the love of money. The word character could well be translated lifestyle. In fact, it means way of life, way of living. It's your lifestyle. And money must not drive the lifestyles of Christians. This must not be our driving factor in life. We are to be content. We are to be satisfied with what we have. Now, it doesn't mean we refuse to work hard or try to take care of our families in better ways. Of course we do all of those things. Other scriptures actually command us to do those kinds of things. This means that the motivating force in our lives is not the drive for money and possessions. We are satisfied with what we have. We're not living constantly in frustration and discontentment because we don't have what someone else has. Our security in life does not come from money. Now, that is a countercultural value because our entire country, uh, our entire culture tells us that money brings security, and it doesn't. It is one of the worst myths of our culture that money brings security. Americans have more than anyone has ever had before of this world's stuff but we are the most discontented people the world has ever seen as of 2009 here's just one little illustration as of 2009 the United States now has 2.3 billion square feet of self storage space you know that's self storage outside from your home you've got to have a place to store all the stuff 
2.3 billion square feet of self-storage space. The Self-Storage Association notes that with more than 7 square feet for every man, woman, and child in America, it's now, quote, physically possible that every American could stand all at the same time under the total canopy of self-storage roofing in America. According to the association, one out of every ten households in the country rents a self-storage unit for our stuff. We pay. Are we happy yet? No, we're not. Now, I'm not here to pick on anyone here. If you have a self-storage unit, I'm not trying to... <laughs> get on you specifically about that. It's just an illustration to make us understand that it doesn't bring security and doesn't bring happiness. Go to a third world country like Guatemala and our missions team, I'm sure, will share with us and you see happiness without all that stuff. The ancient Greek philosopher Epictetus wrote, Contentment comes not so much from great wealth as from few wants. Boy, is that true. It's our wanters that get us in trouble. It's the love of money. And by the way, whether you're rich or poor is not the issue. You can have love of money driving you and be poor as much as wealthy people, and wealthy people can be free from the love of money. It's not how much you have, it's your value system that is the critically important factor here. Notice what the verse tells us, though. We can be satisfied or content with what we have because Jesus said, I will never abandon or desert you. So we can say with certainty, with absolute faith, That God will be our helper. We do not need to fear. That is real security. The Lord is with you. Whether you have much or whether you have little. You don't have to be afraid of that. He loves you. He takes care of you. Our security comes from him. Not the amassing of stuff. Contentment doesn't come from having lots of stuff. Contentment comes from believing in God's help to live our lives. It's a lifestyle of faith. It's an act of faith to be content (laughs) and not to be frustrated and discontented. That's an act of faith. We trust God so we can be content with what we have to be satisfied with what we have and not be driven by money in life. And that is a counter-cultural value. Just uh, Thursday, I read an article on CNN.com, and here's what the people said. I don't know these commentators. Apparently, they write for uh, their journalists who write for various magazines. They wrote, If morality is about the pursuit of your own success and happiness, then giving money away to strangers is, in comparison, not a morally significant act. Science, freedom, and the pursuit of profit 
if we can learn to embrace these three ideals, an unlimited future awaits. In the article, they went on to argue that the moral heroes of our world, and that's the word they use, the moral heroes of our world, should not be Jesus Christ, or for that matter, Mother Teresa. They should be Charles Darwin and John Rockefeller and Bill Gates, and not Bill Gates because he's giving any money away, but Bill Gates because he made lots of money. These are our moral heroes in America, or should be. Now, you can see how countercultural <laughs> we're called to be in this world. Those are not supposed to be our moral heroes. The profit margin is not what life is about. We don't live for ourselves. We live for others. We don't think money or profit is the highest value. We're content with what we have in life, and we live lifestyles to demonstrate that, that faith in God. We value marriage. We give to strangers in need. These are the kingdom values. Do you want to have a kingdom impact? Value God's values. While serving as a missionary in Laos a number of years ago, John Yoder discovered an illustration of the kingdom of God. Before the colonialists imposed national boundaries on Laos and Vietnam, the kings of Laos and Vietnam had a unique way of figuring out whom to tax, who was a part of their kingdom. They didn't go by border areas or where you lived. Instead, those people who ate short grain rice, built their house on stilts, and decorated them with Indian-style serpents were considered Laotians. On the other hand, those who ate long grain rice, built their homes on the ground, and decorated them with Chinese-style dragons were considered Vietnamese, no matter where they lived. The exact location of a person's home was immaterial. It wasn't what determined their nationality or to whom they paid taxes. Instead, each person belonged to the country whose values they exhibited, whose lifestyle they lived, and they paid their taxes to that country. And missionary John Yoder says, guess what? What a perfect illustration of us Christians. We live in this world, but this is not our home. We belong to heaven. That's where we pay our taxes. That's who owns us. Now, we live in this world, but how do you know who's a Christian? How do you know? You know by the lifestyle, the value system. It's the only way. We're living out heaven's values here. And that's the way we know one another as being a part of the kingdom. Father, teach us, help us, empower us to live with your values this week and your standards. In Jesus' name, amen.